Hey, this is Richard, and before we get started, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be hosting a webinar with Recast Software on August 24th, where we'll be discussing navigating the hybrid work security landscape. Go to recastsoftware.com slash events-webinars to register today, and on with the show. From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 892, Azure Innovations with guest Mark Rusinovich, recorded Thursday, May 25th, 2023. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Hi, this is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio. I'm here at Build in Seattle. The weather's kind of nice, and it's an exciting time, amazing set of announcements. I'm very fortunate to have Mark Rosinovich, CTO of Azure, if I remember correctly. That's right. I mean, once upon a time, you were the Sysinternals guy, but that was a long time ago. And then, That's and then true. I, well, I'm still the Sysinternals guy. Yes, you are. It's, that doesn't go away. And then there was Red Dog. Yep. But that's even a long time now. That was. Right? And that's Red Dog was before I joined Azure. That was right. the original but, code name. But yeah, you got involved. You were involved in that, really trying to bring the cloud to life from a Windows perspective, I think, initially, although that seems less and less relevant these days, what well, operating system we run anymore. Well, when I joined Azure, it was a, what we call a PaaS, mm-hmm. compute service. It had this cloud service model, and it was called Windows Azure, and right. the only OS it supported was a Windows. version of Windows for Azure. And uh, so one of the first things when I arrived that was under discussion already was, do we do IaaS, mm-hmm. uh, Infrastructure as a Service, which AWS had, and then... As part of that, do we do Linux? Because it was all about, hey, we this PaaS, we believe in the future of PaaS, and yeah. there's lots of benefits of it, but enterprises were unable to migrate their workloads easily to it. I, re- I remember that original PDC, and they're talking about the app role and the web role and so yeah. forth. And in hindsight, I look at that and go, wow, that's serverless before we knew we wanted serverless. Yeah. Like and it's almost like it's too far ahead of its time. It was too far ahead. At yeah. that time, we wanted VMs, and you wouldn't sell us VMs, but you fixed that. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, so that happened uh, after I joined, um, worked with Corey Sanders and some other people yeah. on saying, what, what do we build for an infrastructure as a service V1? And as part of that decision, it was, you know, Satya was running Azure at the time. And uh, the question of, do we do Linux with Windows was a resounding, yes, we need to meet our enterprise customers where they're at. Yeah. Whatever payload you got, we want to run it. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Uh, I think it was a couple of years it took for the name change to happen to, yeah. from Windows Azure to Microsoft Azure. Yeah, and and also it seems like a pivot of the company. I mean, you, yeah. you guys are cloud company first now, which after 30 years of being a Windows first company, like that's an extraordinary pivot. But in, now it just occurs to me, like you pivoted too. Yeah, well, <laughs> actually, I, um, I, you know, I, I always viewed myself as having arrived on the scene a little bit too late when it came to operating systems, which I loved, and I. Studied when I was in high school and then college and right. then came out and was working on internals of Unix and then Windows and then joined 
Microsoft, but a lot of the concepts that are underlying Windows, even today, and Linux, were developed in the 1970s and 80s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's been a lot of refinement and adding a lot of features on top of the core. The core is really what interests me. And so I'm, I was disappointed that I'd missed on being able to really fundamentally contribute to the core of something that would last a long time. Right. But uh, in 2010, actually in 2009 timeframe, I'd, and eight even, um, I'd known about Red Dog. I was friends with Dave Cutler and Amitabh Shivastrava, who's running the team, and Ray Ozzy, who was the one supporting the Azure incubation, the Red Dog incubation, was talking to all of them, and they were saying, hey, you should consider coming and working over here on, on this new cloud thing. And so I, 2010 is when I finally got serious about looking at what's going on here in the computing industry. Uh, right. What are the dynamics, the technology trends? And at that point, I became convinced. I'd been convinced that mobile was going to be a huge disruption even before Microsoft recognized it as one. Yeah. And at this point in 2010, I was like, the cloud's going to be a huge disruption. Yeah. And guess what? I can have a chance to... You got to write a kernel. Early. Yeah. Yeah. They, because the kernel's different when you think in cloud. That's right. Yeah. yeah no, no question. You did a, a mechanics video not that long ago talking about chat gpt running in the cloud yeah, it actually was just published yesterday yeah okay yeah. that that's very cool i mean i've had a ch i had a chance to tour some of the quincy data centers so I've, i mean i've seen some of that stuff up close back in the day obviously it's continued to evolve how much effect do you have on hard do you get involved with the hardware side as well as just the the cloud as architecture when it comes to these yeah. data centers well the really amazing thing about my role as chief technology officer is that i can go anywhere right across the platform and be, learn what's going on and provide feedback. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so I've been involved in everything from the design of our servers to our accelerated offloads, which I'm going to be showing later in my presentation today, to uh, contributing and giving feedback on the design of this DASC for computer infrastructure. Um, it's the world's biggest technology sandbox. And, sure. And so uh, I, I get to play a, a role in contributing to all aspects of it. Yeah, and... and, and to me, it seems like ChatGPT very much, and the relationship with OpenAI was very much, hey, you need a place to go experiment. Let us provide Azure to you because that's a big place to experiment. And these large language models really emerged from having enough compute to really say, well, what happens when we provide more language and more language? And new features started to emerge from that increase of size, although it, by all measures, it's a beast. Like, yeah, it's, could it run anywhere else other than Azure? Um, well, we don't talk about the current scale, the scale of the infrastructure that trained GPT-4. Right. We talk about the previous generation, mm -hmm. the AI supercomputer we built for OpenAI for GPT-3. And we talk about that as 10,000 GPUs, 250,000 cores. Wow. Um, and the, you can imagine the latest generation is even bigger than that one at the yeah, time. Yeah, we know how much bigger <laughs> GPT-4 is, so yeah. extrapolate at your peril. Yeah. But, and, and that's that, the training, which, I mean, this is one of the things I figured, you know, came to realize, like, what? All these machine learning models are brilliant for the cloud because when you're training, you need a massive amount of compute. That's right. And then when you're operating, you need anywhere near as much. So why would you want to own all of that when you can rent it? Yeah. Well, actually, it's kind of interesting because the training requires, uh, and I, I'm going to talk about this in my talk with Scott Hanselman tomorrow when mm -hmm. we, we learn to code with Copilot, and I'll go behind and talk about what these models, what they are and how they're built and how they run. When it comes to training, there's a, a type of training called data parallelism. Mm -hmm. What you do is you take many, many instances of the model you're going to train, you spread them out across GPUs, and then you feed them all chunks of data 
they process their own local chunk and then they all synchronize right. what they've uh, learned. Their, uh, it's kind of that. a map reduce concept, exactly. right? Yeah. In fact, the, the, the communication at the end of it is called all reduce. Right. Actually, using an MPI primitive, uh, which is from the APC, HPC world. And that's why you want these large clusters because the more GPUs you can have running in this data parallel mode, the faster your training will be. Right. The, um, at the inference side or the serving side, you know, once you've got the trained model, of course you can just deploy it once and, and use it. Right. But when you want to serve lots of co-pilots and Azure OpenAI, you want lots of instances of the model to serve all those different requests. Right. And so you also need a large infrastructure just to support that. The characteristics are a little bit different because they don't need this high-speed network across all of them. Right. They don't need between like do, them anyway. Yeah, between them, like mm -hmm. what you do for training. Uh, but you still want large-scale infrastructure. The fascinating thing for us is that we thought going over the last couple of years that most of the GPU capacity would be for training. And then ChatGPT came out and the power of GPT-4. You've learned now. And Yeah, and then yeah. we're like, uh, with all of the demand now for these capabilities that emerged, you know, uh, surprising just about everybody, we need lots of GPUs now for serving as well. Is there something better than a GPU out there? Like, is this going to, are we going to help this by getting better architectures? One yeah, of the absolutely. things Panos talked about was the NPU showing up in the workstation or in the laptop. I mean, could you be designing chips that would be more effective at this kind of workload? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, everybody, you know, NVIDIA has got the GPUs mm -hmm. uh, that are the, at the cutting edge for um, AI. And they're exploring how to make more efficient GPUs, AMD's making efficient GPUs with their MI series of mm -hmm. GPUs. Intel's working on accelerators that are not even GPUs, but they're custom for AI workloads. Right. So, and when we talk about GPUs, we, G, G has really graphics. Just, yeah, we presume graphics, but you're really talking scalar That's processors. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's, it's a generic term. Yeah. Generic processing unit? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, it, and, of course, those guys have been involved in it the whole way along. It's amazing how, how far that's moved in the... I mean, I think about having some of that processing on board, and again, we saw this demo where they did a stable diffusion right on the yeah, laptop, yeah. but I don't think a large language model will fit in there. The, the largest large language models definitely won't fit right. in there. They don't even fit on one A100 GPU, right. which has uh, got 80 gigabytes of GPU memory, high-speed, high-bandwidth uh, high memory on it. They require multiple of them. Right. In fact, many, many of them <laughs> to run one into the model because that 80 gigabytes, if you take a look at the number of parameters, like G, uh, mm -hmm. GPT-3 had 175 billion parameters, right. and each of those are 16 bits, for example, yeah. then that kind of gives you an idea of just the model weights that themselves. When you're training, uh, and th that actually that that's what you would deploy for inference um, right. at time. So uh, just multiply that out by... You know, say, what if the model's ten times bigger than that? Yeah. Well, how much? How many GPUs of eighty gigabytes would you need yeah. to hold all of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm also acutely aware it's like we are coming towards the end of Moore's law. Like chips are only going to get so much denser. Like, I don't get a feeling this that kind of compute performance is going to end up in my phone yet. The the current generation that Nvidia is doing are a lot of five nanometer like they're pretty current stuff like we are coming into an intersection point here where yeah. I think there's going to be some architectural improvements the chip density is going to increase a little bit more but we're getting close to thresholds 
I, you know, it's kind of fascinating because, uh, as uh, Pat Gelsinger says, people have been declaring the end of Moore's Law for, for a, a long, long time. time. In yeah. fact, when I joined Microsoft in 2006, people were already saying, yeah. that's the end of Moore's Law. We need to scale out now. Yeah. And so multi-core well, and, was and the we, big thing. And right? it was really just because we were having heat problems, right? You, yeah. People, uh, you know, confuse Moore's Law with processor speed, which it's not what it was. That's right. Talking to you, Rocky Lock, yeah. <laughs> uh, we had a long yeah. debate on a podcast once about that. It's like, it's just the number of, of transistors on the die, thanks. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the, the true aspect of the density on the die, I mean, the, the silicon atom is a certain size. Yeah. There's really a question of can we make, control quantum tunneling with other atomic structures That's right. in, a, in a higher density and then also manufacture hundreds of billions of yeah, them that's right at a relatively low cost yeah i you know i personally think that we are on the verge of running against walls like denard scaling which is another one of the mm-hmm. scaling for transistors as they get smaller is the amount of heat that they yeah you just can't shed the heat anymore right so um which were you know is the reason we're looking moving to liquid cooling yeah that's part of is one of many going, kind of going back to it right? yeah yeah that's right <laughs> the same time we had that wave of going multi-core because the p4s were getting so hot we started doing liquid cooling in our machines as well yeah. and then eventually we got phase change cooling and the chips got cooler and we stopped all of that and maybe we'll cycle back yeah, to it again. I, th- I think we're going to cycle back and to compensate for denard scaling and wanting just more density and and a data center if you take a look at the amount of the number of watts on, on one of these gpus mm-hmm. um several yeah. hundred watts uh several thousand watts actually and you talk about um, the number of servers that you can place in a rack just with uh, it, it comes out to three or four in a standard right. rack and that's just because you can't dissipate the heat you can't with share air, the heat right the rack's got room but yeah. you'll just, just slag yeah. everything so your data centers you know floor space is it's it's a very lightly packed data center right because of because you're just trying yeah. to cool it so if we could cool it with uh, liquid we could uh, shed the heat more efficiently, which would allow us to get to higher clock speeds yeah. or translate that into energy efficiency, depending on what you want. And you pack everything more densely, which helps in a number of ways. One of them is your floor space is safe, which sure. is cool. But even more than that, if you uh, watch the videos from Satya and Kevin about the amount of InfiniBand network ca- cables right. in Scott Guthrie that we're using to create these large systems... Those are expensive cables. Yeah. And if you can pack things more densely. And shorten them. You shorten them, right? Yeah. That makes it, that could make a huge difference too. I mean, I remember we've, we've gone through this cycle a few times when virtualization densified our servers and suddenly our racks cleared out. And then as we got more compute load, we ran out of power yeah. because we were doing more compute per machine, but we didn't have enough electricity for that. Like there's been this oscillation back and forth in density, power, and cooling requirements, but in a lot of ways, we don't have to deal with this anymore. That's your problem now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you guys run all those heavy workloads for us. Yeah. Supercomputing to me is a very interesting angle because I've I've always thought about supercomputing as very specific classes of problems, things like uh, aerodynamic flow problems and hurricane prediction, those kinds of massive compute problems that seemed they, they were non-deterministic problems, but there were a set number of them. So mm-hmm. there was only so many needs for it. But, you know, you've described dealing with these large language models very much as a supercomputing problem. It, it makes me wonder, are we finding more general uses for supercompute, that companies are more routinely going to be using supercompute for important business practices? Well, I, I think AI, if you take a look at AI, it's basically taking in data and transforming it into right. some function, right? right. Um, and when you talk about the 
large models that need to be very capable. They need huge amounts of data mm -hmm. to train them to come out with the right uh, for model, the the right uh, uh, formula for making the predictions you want or the output that you want. And so, this is where I think the why we call it an AI supercomputer. We don't call it a large language model supercomputer because right. it's designed for Any that class of problem, problem right? Yeah. Uh, give it, a, give something a bunch of data, and have it just churn through that data, learning, right. learning a function. I, I think it's an interesting angle on this that most of the time when I've talked to folks about supercompute problem spaces, they spend more time configuring the model than they do running the problem. Like that, yeah, I mean, it, it uh, it's definitely one of those inner inner loop developer things where mm -hmm. you and and you know. So here's the kind of fascinating thing that I think too about large language models is that we've come. The industry's found this model architecture called transformer model. Right. And if you take a look at all the large language models, at least, that, have, that are out there, mm -hmm. whether it's for Palm or Llama or GPT-4, they're all very similar. They're all dependent they're on all the dependent same on this, transformer yeah, model. Yeah, this transformer yeah. model. And um, so you take a look at other, like uh, stable diffusion. You mentioned right. that. That's a... a image diffusion model. Mm -hmm. It has a very different architecture. Yes. But they all fit on the same... Uh, infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so, so it's the gear is not specific to the workload per right. se. They, there's a shape to this workload that it's good at running on. That's right. And I, there are some differences to, uh, depending on the type of model you're going to train because it, large language models, you give it a huge amount of text mm -hmm. and it processes the text in tiny chunks, typically a few kilobytes in size. When you talk about video models, yeah, like for autonomous vehicle driving, those are megabytes, tens of megabytes in right. size of chunks. 30, 60 frames on. a second, multiple yeah. cameras, every yeah. frame matters. Yeah. And so, in fact, uh, you might need a petabyte of data to train a model. Right. Uh, where, for that, whereas you need a few hundred terabytes for, uh, for training a large language model. Yeah. Actually, if you think it's a few hundred terabytes for a language model, it means that the image model for driving could be an exabyte. Like, it's just... Yeah. Think about how much video to really encounter all of the variations in enough forms to have some com some probabilistic confidence yeah, in correct behavior. Exactly. Yeah, we I think we all grossly underestimated the automated driving problem. <laughs> yeah, I think Especially actually, I, I I made some uh, bets with friends at a previous Ignite mm -hmm. uh, where this is probably six years ago, seven years ago, and you know autonomous vehicle driving it seemed like we we're making huge breakthroughs, yeah. and Elon Musk is saying it's full self driving is next year, right? which he'd been saying it for a few years already yes. by then. It's been next and year for like five, six years now. It's more than that. Like I think you can go back in 2015 when he started saying it. <laughs> but uh, my friends were saying, so some of my friends were saying that had kids that were like three or four. They were saying, my kids are not going to get a driver's drive. license. Yeah. Actually, I think they're not going to get a driver's license, not because of full self-driving, but because of Uber and right. Lyft. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's more likely. Yeah, It's true. Uh, and Mark, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Your users are on-premises. Your users are on the go. Your users are using on-premises Active Directory. They're using Azure Active Directory. In all these cases, you still have the same problems. Windows is still Windows. Your apps are still your apps. Your browsers are still your browsers. And your users are still your users. Microsoft Group Policy, SCCM, and Intune can only get you so far before you need to cry uncle. Don't panic. You've got Netrix Policy Pack. With Policy Pack, you get the power to manage applications and browsers on Windows 10, overcome application UAC prompts, block ransomware and unknownware, and dynamically configure the Windows 10 start screen, taskbar, and file associations. 
Policy Pack works alongside your on-premises Active Directory and your Azure Active Directory. You owe it to yourself to see a demo of Policy Pack and then get started in just a few clicks. Learn how thousands of other admins enhance their Windows virtual desktop and remote work scenarios. Come to policypack.com to learn more. Netrix Policy Pack, powerful data security made easy. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Mark Rasinovich. Uh, we're here at Build, and we're talking a little bit about the uh, the state of Azure, things things you guys have built, the crazy workloads that are going on today. Uh, it's great to see, you know, the, the early days of Azure, as we were talking, were very much, hey, take your existing workloads, move them here. Uh, and Microsoft's already been a platform company, so then you transform those workloads to give them a lot more capability, like that the platforms are really powerful and useful that way. And going completely to SaaS. So it's like, why run the software yourself? Let me pay by the seat, right? CRM solved that way, M365, like all of those things are better that way. The, do you, I mean, it, clearly we're in this era of the large language model. We're very early on in a very ex- exciting cycle, but you gotta be looking down the road at other new big workloads. Uh, uh, new big workloads uh, beyond the AI ones, which are, like we said, are just large language model. Well, uh, and, that's, and you already clarified, it. that's yeah. only one of them. I'm yeah. sure there'll be others. Yeah. You know, I, I have to wonder if we won't get into better learning models using these systems. Like, we, we have been kind of using the same ones over and over again. Like, is there a new one coming that will make yeah. that more efficient? I, well, I'm, I'm not sure if you're asking about the infrastructure required for the, these, the evolution of mm-hmm. AI. Um, is it- I mean, I, I, I think that's very interesting, but I'm also like, I wonder if metaverse is going to be important at some oh, point. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I, I, and the 3D video, the augmented reality, like these are all also interesting workloads that for someone in your position planning, like, you know, what resources are going to need, what optimizations are we going to need as those things start to yeah. emerge? Well, certainly, um, if you take a look at, at scale is, uh, is a relative term. Sure. Because some of these things, if you talk about the scale of the AI supercomputers used to train these things, they're massive scale. I don't mm-hmm. think there's other workloads that are... Are these the biggest machines you've ever seen right now? Uh, effectively? Well, I'll just give you an idea. In 2020, the GPT-3 system that we built mm-hmm. was the fifth largest supercomputer in the world. Right. And, and uh, there are countries that make a big deal out of building super big supercomputers. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. being one of them, but also Japan and China. And, the, and you guys are doing it purely for commercial purposes That's because right. you have a customer who needs it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and if you take a look at, um, like you mentioned, Metaverse, a mm-hmm. lot of the processing, large-scale processing, you mentioned video, mm-hmm. is probably going to rely on GPUs. Right. Even generative models. Right. Um, so, I think a lot of the infrastructure that supports AI training and inference will is directly applicable to things like metaverse. Now, mm-hmm. uh, encoding video where you've got video that needs to be encoded or transcoded, that is a specialized workload. Right. That, for, like for teams chats, for example, where at the kind of scale that we're at, it does make sense to go get specialized processing for that kind of more optimized. Yeah, that. More I mean, optimized. you start to wonder, and again, it makes pro it makes total sense to have this stuff in the cloud so we can only use it when we need it. How many different customized sets of gear you you're going to host for us yeah. to optimize all the different kinds of work we're going to do? I think it's actually going to continue to grow because mm-hmm. if you take a look at uh, why why do you create something specialized versus right. the general thing? It's because you're going to save money. It's got to be an order of magnitude yeah, improvement. It's, it's right? got to be right. Yeah. And and when you're at a small overall scale, it just doesn't make sense. No, 
You can brute force with what you got. That's right. Or you just don't have an option. It's going to be too expensive to go and fragment your capacity. And we didn't have GPUs until it became off. We had high enough resolution monitors and a high enough demand for 3D renders that it made sense to build specialized hardware. That's right. So when you get to the scale that Azure is at, Mm -hmm. uh, this is when you start looking and saying, for this type of workload, this type of processing, at the scale we're at, if we, what could we save? Or what scenarios could we enable by creating something custom right. to do that, at, given the cost of doing that, both in terms of the development cost, the time to market delays for, you, you, we think we know what we need to know, sure. we know what we want to build and it's going to take three years to get it out and, of production. And the hardware's going to change in those three years. Yeah. And set the workload might change too. Yeah. Um, and then also the fact that at that point, you've got, you've, you've created another uh, capacity planning uh problem dimension yeah in your in the you, ones you've already got you don't buy a rack of stuff that's I mean, right you have to put it into how many data centers to make it buy yeah, we've got over 60 regions yeah. over 200 data centers we're building 50 to 100 so when we introduce something it at least needs to go into what we call the hero regions so right. that if if it's going to be offered as azure customers there are, are certain customers expect. that are going to expect to yeah. be able to use it it better be in their region that's right yeah. so so you got to factor all that in um but at the scale that we're getting to more and more for some of these things, like I mentioned video, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it does make Suddenly sense. Suddenly it starts to emerge. As, it, I mean, you may think back to all the old spark boxes that made uh, um, uh, the Pixar films work, where they pretty much built their own custom hardware to be able to render those films. Uh, and today, that a we, general compute could do that. It's not that big yeah. of a deal in, in, in GPUs. But a lot of people waste a lot of money trying to build custom hardware that way. Like That's it's, right. it's very challenging to think broadly enough about why that architecture would make a big enough difference to build enough of it that lasts long enough to actually you get the three years to get it out the door and at least a five-year runtime yeah, for six, it to be practical. Six, six is our latest depreciation. You sort of, yeah. yeah, you run on yeah. six years. Actually, that brings up an interesting point. It's just a total sideline. Pandemic hits. Yeah. It's a tough time. You guys must have kept everything you had turned on because your cloud demand went through the roof. It, it like, did. It did. It, I remember when the EU asked Netflix to turn off 4K and I thought, how close are we? Yeah. Like, Because if the internet yeah. had tipped over then, yeah. that well, would have been a bad day. This is kind of a uh, fascinating. So Azure, we did ha- we were under supply constraints yeah. we, in several regions. We didn't. We ran out of capacity because of this. And so we were we were... I, I actually gave a talk about how we were optimizing our own infrastructure. Yeah, I, re- I remember talking to friends of mine inside of Microsoft saying, yeah. I've been turn- told to turn off stuff if it's not important. That's right. Like, so that's did, how close it got. So we did that. And and uh, so this was a massive all hands on deck. Let's go figure out how to free up capacity in the right places that are that need it mm-hmm. to support the demand from work from home and work remotely. Or sorry, learn from home right. and work remotely. Um and that made me think, what if COVID had happened 10 years before Yeah. when we didn't have cloud? Yeah, yeah. I think that the experience would have been way far worse. Far worse. Yeah, you're yeah. totally right. Far, far worse. I mean, not even 10 years. Think about it three or four years earlier. Yeah. Like, we, we, we got lucky. We got lucky. We got it at a time when, when cloud was robust enough to even have a chance to that, pull us off. Right. And it was still a near thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it is, and it will never be in that situation again, effectively barring any other yeah. crisis. I mean, we have a Carrington event and that'll be exciting. Um, but it is interesting to think about the, it's like, those are the years that cemented compute as a utility, at least in the developed world. I mean, it's, there's, there's still a great asymmetry here. Yeah. I got, I still get opportunities to go to 
less developed parts of the world, and it's just, and it's still not on their radar. Yeah, they've just got a phone. Yeah, right, and and it's still a huge empowerment. I mean, even a, a fifty dollar Android phone in a place like Ghana is a is an amazing device. Yeah, well, the, I I think that um, if you take a look at cloud and what it it does, even for those developing parts of the world, mm-hmm. it is an enabler because prior to cloud, it's standing up a data center. It's, right racking and stacking and yeah. to manage the software. And so these and getting enough power and, and get, and getting enough stability and, yeah. and, on, and having a team, you know, setting up a 24 knock. That's like, right. None of that's trivial. Yeah. I mean, even if you did hosting, you know, outsourced and hosting is still mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of it is what you've got to do yeah. on top of the metal that they give you. Um, so what cloud enables is ac- you know, stand up compute, not just VMs, but serverless and SaaS and yeah. use it from wherever. Yeah. Um, and throw in a Starlink, thank you, Elon. And yeah. you actually have decent bandwidth anywhere you got a clear shot at the yeah. sky. So I think um, cloud is is helping reach. Yeah. Um, and even when the cloud's that. a little bit far away, yeah. you at least have a compute resource. It's only a bandwidth issue That's away. Right. You're still talking a, a couple of hundred milliseconds, yeah. which is, is an astonishing improvement. Yeah. It, it's got to be an interesting debate also as to where you add data centers when you're talking about the developer world. Like how much closer do you want to get where, and can you establish those kind of things? Did you ever take a look at Project Natick? Yeah, yeah. I, I talked a lot about Project Natick in my uh, innovation talks. I did a couple of shows on them, uh, you know, after the Orkney one got pulled back. I mean, it, it yeah. seemed like it got a little quiet. Every I loved everything about that. I like yeah. the passive cooling. I like the location close to the space. You're using land that nobody else is going to use. Like, it's just a bit small, isn't it? Well, we actually phase three of Natick. Uh, they had a plan to create gantries that would support multiple megawatts. In fact, uh, availability zone size and even small region size right. deployments. Of course, we know about this. I don't know the listeners do. You have to go yeah. back and listen to the show. The, this was underwater data center. That's right. Uh, there was phasic. Uh, Natick phase one, which was just taking a tank uh, that fit a rack, right? dropping it into 20 feet of water, letting it sit there for a month, pulling it up and saying, yeah, things are you know looking good. And then the, a larger scale experiment, which had controls on land in various configurations and a cylinder that held 12 racks mm-hmm. that of, of uh, decommissioned basically Azure servers. The former servers. Former servers that we put in, as you mentioned, I think it was 100 meters of, uh, beneath the water off the Orkney Islands. Right. And let it sit there for a year. Yeah. And then we pulled it up and compared, you know, did the analysis comparing its performance of, with respect to the controls. And we found a lot of really interesting insights. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest one is, and it was kind of one of the hypothesis, if we put this in this inert uh, liquid, which is nitrous gas, um, at we, we expect that there'll be less corrosive effects on right. the servers. We also think that that because humans aren't touching it, this is... Uh, yeah. No requires, tourists. Yeah. No <laughs> tourists. No scuba diving, uh, yeah. you know, service uh, engineers. Uh, but rather, we let the thing we let the thing fail in place. And the idea was they degrade to a certain level and then you yank that yeah. tank and replace Which it. Which is your normal pattern anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, those racks stay in place. The ones that fail are, are no longer used, but only at the end of the six years yeah. do they get removed. Well, actually, when servers fail mm-hmm. today in the data center or parts fail, we... Uh, out for repair them and you get them fixed as quickly as we can. Okay. Yeah. So you will literally pull from yeah, the rack? we will. Now we've been Do you replace the whole rack or are you talking like no, pull no. a component well, from a rack? It's component. The racks don't fail themselves. Just okay. pieces and you know, parts yeah. in the rack. Um, like the ser- server blades. That's interesting. Part. I used to think you just left them in place yeah. and just took them out whole. At whole in, on, like, yeah. Who's spinning screwdrivers anymore? Yeah, you know? no. Uh, actually, so people still do. Yeah. Um, we are 
we've been working towards uh, fail-in-place architectures or, mm-hmm. or system design to, that would be required for a Natick. But the thing about Natick that was fascinating is people felt, the researchers thought that not moving them, not having people jostle them, right. which we, is anecdotally kind of a source of data of server failures. Yep. Is, yeah, it's, uh, yeah you know, we believe is a problem. Yeah, you're pulling wires from one server and the next one over. It bumped a little. It bumped it a little bit yeah. and, and then it uh, triggers it to, to degrade. What they found was compared to the control experiments on land where they were actually having you know people service them, mm-hmm. uh, that it was the inert gas that caused them to have one-eighth the failure rate as the controls on land. So getting oxygen out of the loop. Yep. Getting uh, water vapor out of the loop. Water vapor out of the loop. Yep. So 0% humidity, yep. but still nitrox. That's right. Okay. So it's an inert, inert I, I, And I, I think when I talked to Galen Hunt about this, he said it wasn't 0%. It was low. Yeah. Enough to keep like the yeah, seals probably, lubricated. If, yeah. But, so not quite zero. But, but enough that humans would be uncomfortable in it. That's right. Uh, but the ideal environment for machines. I'd also think the totally consistent temperature would be powerful. Actually, we found that wasn't. Uh, really? We, yeah. We also, I mean, that was another thing. With yeah, you presume. So we had controls on land that were, uh, were cert- the no engineers touched them. We right. let them fail in place. We had another control, which was... We let we kept them at a constant um, temperature, and other ones where we would ramp them up and down mm-hmm. and let them heat and cool nor, uh, normally. Right, and it didn't the, seem the, to matter. The, big, the biggest factor was, I mean, they because if it's only bit. humidity, yeah. then if it's if you're doing underwater for reliability, and, and, it's not and, worth it. Inner, so particles were also yeah. right, not in the environment. So either. pure pure air, pure nitrox, controlled humidity, you could do that in a building. Well, you could, um, but what we're doing is, well, our speculation was if we liquid cool them, if we immerse them right. in either single phase or dual phase or, or uh, liquid, mm-hmm. that we'll get the same benefit of inert material, right? no water, yeah, no corrosion. corrosion, and it's proven to be right in our experiments. I mean, the Cray guys were right back in the day. Yeah. It's just the thing in mineral oil. I mean, the other reason for the underwater thing was a lot of workloads are needed by shoreside cities, and shoreside land is expensive, so using their bays is cost effective, you know, yeah. it keeps you close for less money. I guess that's another set of economic issues. It, it is. I think that um, when we look at actually operationalizing a Natick system, mm-hmm. there were a lot of logistic questions, a lot of regulatory questions, right. a lot of questions around even security and safety yeah. that we hadn't figured out. And so, you know, this is the great thing about Suddenly the land doesn't look that expensive anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's and not just that. I mean, uh, land is, you know, a challenge. Sure. You're finding, procuring land for data centers Especially is Especially the sheer amount you that, need. That's right. Yeah. Um, but if you take a look at the, all the other, like getting network fiber and power out to the underwater uh, data underwater, center. Underwater, not a trivial problem. Yeah, not a trivial problem. How do you, um, how do you make sure that... Um, and how do you secure those things at yeah. that point, too? You know, yeah, you've sure. got cables coming up on the land. Um, yeah. They can be damaged. They can be hacked. Yeah. Um, how do you secure the building? I mean, why don't you, you yeah. know. How do you, yeah. Do you Azure have, data centers, you if you've you see one, charges famously them unapproachable. Like, that's yeah. not a friendly place to go. Those fences yeah. are serious. Yeah, that's right. And, and you and don't air, have that same sense And of airspace is controlled over, you know, sovereign territories. Right. It's not controlled over open water. So right. you run into a whole bunch of. Interesting, interesting problems, problems yeah. yeah. Well, and, and you guys certainly work at the dealing with state level issues. That sure sounds like a state level issue, yeah, right there. Right. I'm going to leave that right there. But it's, yeah, yeah. 
but it served a useful purpose. You learned very specifically what the factors are to control for for maximum reliability on this hardware. And that's a, that's a valuable learn right there. It yeah, makes definitely. a very worthwhile project. You controlled all the variables and got to the point of this is the thing. Get the particulate out of the atmosphere. Get, get the humidity set just right so that the machine is comfortable. Yeah. And that's, that's also one of the fun things about being in Azure at Microsoft. With Microsoft Research and incubations teams and the engineering groups and even research. I've got a group under me, Azure Research. Right. Which is free to kind of explore things. When the Natick team came to me and first presented it, I was like, this is a waste of total waste of time. <laughs> and uh, I, I get that because yeah. there's lots of things to spend money on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know that the whole point is that you need to give people with create creative ideas the ability to go explore. Them, even crazy. if you get, were you going to say crazy idea? Yeah, or or <laughs> ideas that you think are crazy. Yes. Right? Um, the ability to go explore them because yeah. if you stifle that, and it's it's everybody saying you know you know no we know how to we know we what know the answer is yeah that you're not going to allow yourself to learn. And yeah, a lot of the core postulations didn't come to pass, but certain things did come out, and it's yeah. absolutely valuable. If you hadn't explored that, you never would have known. Yeah. Man, that's really profound. I hope there's some other cool ones under there that you're, you're tinkering with. Well, I'm actually, this Azure Innovation session I'm giving this afternoon, I've got 10 innovations I'm going to show in 45 minutes, which I, I'm like... Four I'm actually re- each? Yeah, <laughs> you're actually watching me a lot here on this podcast debate with myself whether I should do only nine. Yeah. Uh, because tens might be squeezing too much into that. It's a lot, man. Box. <laughs> but it's like I look at them and I go, I've already cut like three Yeah, to oh. get to this point. And they're all so cool. And I'm I, at this point, I'm like frozen. I can't. I'm they're all too cool. Yeah. That's a good problem to have. But you're an experienced speaker. You and I have been in a lot of conferences over the years. Like, you know how much time you have. I also am pretty sure you're Mark Rosinovich. And if you go long, nobody's going to mind. Yeah, well, they told me I need to finish at 45 minutes. So, okay. Yeah. Do your best. Yeah. Go long. <laughs> yeah, Mark, it's so good to spend some time yeah. with you again. Thank yeah, great you. Great seeing you, Richard. All right. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. Yeah.